Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 20 through verse 25. If you would, church family, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us, who cares for us, who sees after us, Lord, we come to you today as your children in need of you, as those in need of your grace, in need of your instruction, Lord, even if we don't recognize it, in need of your correction and in need of your discipline. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would come, that you would be with us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would encourage us, and Lord, that you would discipline us, that you would do so for the sake of our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to understand this text Help us to use it, to apply it to our lives and our hearts. Lord, I pray that these words would not enter in one ear and out the other, but Lord, that you might work by the power of the Spirit to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives, and to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If we were to seek to select a story from the scriptures, or possibly even from history in general, that most accurately portrayed this proverb, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. We would be hard-pressed to find a story that fits that proverb, and that demonstrates that proverb more vividly and more clearly than the story that we have here before us today. Here we see in our text today the serious danger of the sin of pride on full display. We see this proverb come to life. We see the fall. We see the destruction that comes as an outcome of the sin of pride. This is a fascinating story that we have before us here and one that that like many of the stories that Dr. Luke puts, puts in the book of Acts, might seem out of place, it might seem uh, strange, it might seem like he turned on a dime and, and shifted gears. And this short story is about one particular event, and that event is the death of Herod. But even though this event is a little bit after the ordeal with James and, and Peter, there has been some time that's passed. We don't know exactly how long, but some time. And even though there is no apostle that is, 
that is really central to this story. They're mentioned a little bit, but by and large, the story of the death of Herod isn't centered around the apostles or, or even the church. But even though that is the case, this story of the death of Herod is actually for us the conclusion of the story that we looked at last week. It's the conclusion of the, of the events that we saw last week as Herod was persecuting the church, as he killed James, and as he imprisoned Peter. And it's an important addition here at the end of chapter 12, as Luke writes for us. And I think it's an important addition because if we were to read the passage that we read last week, as we did, and we only read that, in fact, many preachers, commentators, they usually take this chapter as a whole. Now, for my purposes last week, my hope was to especially emphasize and focus on prayer and the role that prayer plays in the life of a believer. But we could have very easily taken last week's text and added on this story because they do all go together. It is a completion of the story of Herod. Lest anyone think that what we saw last week was a story where Herod scored a point against God and against the church by the killing of James, but then God scored a point back against Herod by stealing Peter away, snatching away his prized prisoner, but then that was the end of the story. Lest we think that the story is just of this dual dynamic between the power struggle of the world and God against evil and good, we are given this story here to wrap it all up, to conclude really what we looked at last week. Luke tells us a bit more here about Herod and his end so that we might know, so that we might know for sure that Herod lost, utterly lost. And the Lord demonstrated his power and judgment upon unrighteousness. Because we might be tempted to think that the story we saw last week was of this power struggle. It was, like, it was like a basketball game where one team scored a point, then the other team scored a point. As though there's some sort of equal footing or, or like there's any real competition here. But I think part of what Luke wants to do in writing this section, concluding really the story of Herod Agrippa, is to demonstrate for us that not only did Herod not actually score any points, Herod suffered enormous, catastrophic defeat by God. This is an important thing for us to recognize and to remember. I think it's especially important for the church at this time to see this play out as well. Because God's God's people, as all people, are oftentimes prone to despair. We are tempted to despair. We can read the Psalms and see many of this sort of of attitude and and temptation and and inkling towards lament, towards despair. In fact, in Psalm 83, we see a a hint of this at the beginning of the psalm. Psalm 83, 1 through 5, the psalm of, of Israel as they are lamenting the enemies that they have around them. They say this, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, our enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. 
They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. This psalm is a lament by Israel at a time when their enemies were conspiring for their destruction. In fact, the surrounding territories, the surrounding nations were coming together, cooperating with one another for the sake of destroying God's people. And as we read it, we realize that that's not all that different from where the church, God's people here in Acts, now find themselves. At a place when the Jews, the Romans, Herod are conspiring together against them, against God's people for their destruction. And at this point in that psalm, in this point in the life of the church, despair is liable to creep in. Despair was a profound threat for the church at this time. And the Lord knew and provided an antidote in this instance. And that antidote that he provided is a reminder of his power and his authority and his wrath upon this wicked ruler. As believers, we can all come to this place like the author of the Psalms, like probably the church here in Acts, where we come to a crossroads. We are met with with despair. We are met with reasons to be sad. We are met with opposition. We are maybe even met with persecution as the church is here today. And we can be left with two choices. Either we will hope in Christ or we will fall into despair. I think the scriptures, though, over and over again, if we are to remain faithful to them, if we are to go to the scriptures for our comfort, for our hope, we will find that the scriptures will always guide us and direct us to the path of hope and opposed to despair. Because God is in the business of bringing hope to his people. And so our text here for us today serves in this manner. It serves to do really three things, and these are going to be my three points for today. It serves to give us, give us a picture of pride, as we said earlier, that this is probably the best sort of depiction of what we see in the Proverbs in chapter 16. We see a picture of pride. We see a warning in addition to that picture of pride. But we also see a hope for God's people. We see a picture of pride, first of all, in the story of Herod Agrippa here. We've already established last week, if you were here last week, you'll know that Herod was power hungry and he was a people pleaser. That this was largely the driving force between why he was even persecuting the church. He did not have a great zeal for Jewish tradition, not a a great zeal for his religious heritage. Rather, what he desired, what he had a zeal for was power and the approval of people. He desired glory. He desired fame. He desired to be worshipped. We see even more his desires expressed here. His desire for authority and to bring glory upon himself in this story. You see, the the sort of background to what's happening here, we're introduced to these, these cities here, Tyre and Sidon, and we aren't really told much by Luke as far as what's going on here. Now, in this story, what's amazing is that, uh, uh, and helpful, is that the great Jewish historian Josephus provides for us a lot of detail that, that the author Luke doesn't doesn't add in for us because, for as we'll see, they're not really overly important for what Luke seeks to communicate to us. But it is helpful and I think worthwhile noting that 
What was going on here was that these cities, these coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon, were facing some sort of hardship. They were facing a, a, a situation where they were dependent upon Israel. They were dependent upon King Herod for their food, for the supplies that they needed to survive. And there was a broken relationship there. There was issues between them to where trade was constrained. And now they had come to a point, they had been put in a position where they had to come to King Herod and seek his approval, seek reconciliation for the sake of survival. And these two cities come and they, they persuade this one Blastus, this servant of the king, the king's chamberlain, a, a sort of aid to the king. And they are able to negotiate a peace with the king. And as we already know about Herod, being a people pleaser, desiring glory, desiring the majesty for himself, this did nothing but stroke his ego. That these cities, these places had to come to him, begging him, Herod, the one and only, for help, for aid. And he held their fate in the palm of his hand. Just a, a picture-perfect example of a wicked and evil ruler. And when they come to this place and, and they agree and, and Herod becomes the, the savior of Tyre and Sidon, it immediately, just like it always does, goes to his head. And we read that on an appointed day, he put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Again, Josephus tells us a little more detail about what exactly the king had done here. He had taken this robe that Josephus says was woven with pure silver and that he woke up early in the morning to sit on his seat and give this oration so that the sun, as it was at its lowest point early in the morning, would burst, would, would shine off of this royal robe that he gave, giving him a look of, of majesty, even the appearance of a deity. And what happens? The people, now, did they really believe that he was a god? Well, there's a good chance no. But did they really believe that it was in their best interest to grovel before this king, to offer him praise, to offer him these words? Absolutely, yes. And so what do the people say after the king has delivered this oration? The people were shouting the voice of a God, not of a man. We see here this picture of pride in King Agrippa. King Herod Agrippa. He becomes for us an example of where self-exaltation and self-glorification gets a person. And where does it get Herod? It makes him a worm buffet. You might have wondered why I, I use that as my title today because that's exactly where it ends for Herod. That Herod, after the people cry out, the voice of a God, not a man, what does Herod do? He doesn't do what Peter did back in chapter 10. He doesn't do what Paul's gonna do in a few chapters. He doesn't do what angels of God do when people worship them and, and call them gods or deities. He accepts their praise like many wicked leaders in this day would do. He was happy for them to view him, see him as a deity, to see him as a God. And so he basks in their praise. And his end, in verse 23, that an angel of the Lord struck him down. This is another instance where I think the King James uh, language is always just, sometimes it just smacks a little bit harder that the angel of the Lord smote him. And he becomes a worm buffet and is killed, eaten by worms. 
Philippians 3, 18 through 19 also reminds us of the end of those who would take the place of God on the throne. Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. The end of the enemies of God is destruction because their minds are set on earthly things. That was the end for King Herod. His end was one of destruction, one of great loss and great humiliation. That's because Herod's actions here are nothing short of treason. Treason against the king of the universe. This form of treason is one that we are all guilty of. One that each and every one of us, apart from Christ, is guilty of this exact same sin, the very sin we inherit from Adam. One that causes us to rebel against the very one who created us, the God of the universe. This is what pride makes people do, and a part of why it is so devastating and so destructive. It was pride that drove Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden, to disobey the one rule that the Lord laid down for them, to think that they could do better than God in their desire to be like God. Pride makes people shake their fist at God, stand in rebellion against the very one who made them. It really is like thinking about if you were to, to create some little toy soldier, some little, some little action figure, some sort of little doll, and that doll were to come to life and then shake its fists at you and say, I have nothing to do with you. You've done nothing for me. I want to be in charge. It sounds silly to think that that would ever happen, but that is exactly what pride does in the life of human beings. It causes us to turn to the one who created us from the dust, the one who gives us life, who breathes life into us, the one by whom all things are held together. And to say, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. I have a say over my life. I have a say over these things. And this is the picture that we get from King Herod, who was happy to be declared God rather than a man. And with this kind of treason as our understanding, it's right for us to then see that, as point number two is, there is a warning for us here. Just like those who commit treason here on earth face severe, severe punishment. And in fact, in most cases, the punishment for treason is still death. Treason against earthly rulers and authorities is not an offense that goes unpunished. Why should we think that it's going to go unpunished before God? Those who rebel against the king of the universe, those who rebel against the creator of all things, have no hope that that sin is going to go unpunished. No hope that the Lord is going to somehow overlook those things. If Herod had remembered his Jewish history, he would have known this too. He would have heeded the warning that was give him, given him even in the book of Daniel. If you recall, there's a, another great story of humiliation, a story of one being humbled from his prideful place in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. This one who was so proud of the kingdom that he had built, 
so proud of what he had done that he's, as he walked on his rooftop one day of his great palace and he surveyed his kingdom, here's what he said. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? We see Nebuchadnezzar very similarly puffed up with pride and arrogance like Herod. And what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? The book of Daniel tells us that as the words were still in his mouth, the Lord immediately spoke. A voice from heaven came down and God said, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so, Nebuchadnezzar. And God humbled him to the point that he made him live in the field and eat grass like an oxen. Literally turned him into an animal so that for an extended period of time, he was out in the fields with the animals eating food, acting like an animal, lost all sense of what it even means to be human. What a humbling experience that must have been. We don't know exactly how long it was, but we know it was long enough that the the text says that his fingernails became like bird's claws. You can kind of visualize that, can't you? Nebuchadnezzar, if, if King Herod Agrippa had simply looked into the history books of his own people, he would have known the end of people who behaved the way he was behaving. But he didn't. The thing is, though, just like Herod had a warning that he could have easily looked to and heard and and heeded, we now have a warning for us, an example in the life of Herod. Glorifying ourself and putting ourself in the place of God leads to death. It leads to destruction. Those who oppose God will lose. They will never win. Not only is it a loss, it is a humiliating defeat. I think that's why the author adds in the description here about worms. That he says he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. There are some who who speculate on exactly what the purpose of this addition is here Some think that it's possible that he had some sort of parasite or something that killed him. But there are a lot of authors, and I think there's reason to to accept that he probably died of some other sort of cause, though we don't know what. But the inclusion of of him being eaten by worms here is a common way of describing the humiliation, the shame that came upon him. Not only did he described as dying, but he was eaten by worms. This is his end. And this is the end of those who oppose God. They become worm food, a worm buffet. It's a sort of humiliating statement on where Herod went from one who the people were declaring a voice of God, not of man, to one who was being eaten by worms. It is a shameful and disgusting thing to even think about. Because worms are gross, right? I was, uh, uh, this last week, I was telling the story to, uh, to Lindsay and Aaron the other day crazy, crazy thing happened on Thursday. And I don't know if, if anyone else has seen this. I think we're in a season right now where these little grub worms are like coming out of the ground. Uh, they're like worms, but they're fat and, and ugly, right? And they come out of the ground as like uh, there's moisture or if it rains. Thursday morning, I came out of my house with my boys to discover thousands, thousands of huge, big, fat grub worms all over my driveway, all over the road that had made their way out of our neighbor's yard and just taken over the streets to the point that you couldn't walk without stepping on one of these grub worms. 
and they just crunch beneath your feet and splatter like that, and now they're splatter all over the road. All right, I'll stop, I'll stop. <laughs> it's gross, because worms are gross. And the picture that we have of being eaten by worms is just a further declaration of where Herod was humbled to, not just to the point of death, but to the point of being worm fodder. This is the end of those who oppose God. Not only is it a loss, not only is it, is it destruction, but it is a humiliating, devastating loss. That is our warning, a warning that we need. Because as Christians, we know that we are also still prone to pride, right? You might even be sitting there thinking and asking, what, is the, what do I do? How do I avoid this kind of pride in my life? And I'll tell you what, I'm glad you asked. The answer, as it oftentimes is, is found in the gospel. You see, because the gospel is opposed to human pride. Human pride says, look to yourself, exalt yourself. The gospel says, look to Christ, because there's nothing you can do for yourself. Even the, 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 the parts of the gospel that recall to our minds things like, things like election, this doctrine of election, one that is oftentimes so misunderstood, so contested, is one that brings us such great hope and humbles us before God. The idea that there's nothing that we could ever do for God to look at us with any sort of love or, or any sort of hope that he could look upon us and save us because of something in us is a ridiculous thing. But God, in his mercy, because of his goodness, because of his great love, looked at us when? While we were yet sinners and chose to save us. That he chose us before the foundation of the world. Not because of anything that we have done or will do, but because of who he is. What a humbling thing this doctrine is for us to recall to our minds. That we've done nothing to earn God's favor. That there is no boasting that we can bring to the table, for it is all in Christ. Our salvation, the gospel, is a great, great place for us to go to rid ourselves of pride, to fight against this great and destructive sin. Point number three. This story also brings for us a hope for the church. Brings for us a hope, well, A, a hope for the church. We see that hope depicted in verse 24, that not only are the enemies of God going to face utter destruction apart from repentance and faith, but in verse 24, we, we read, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, here we see this great word in the scriptures, that word but, that so often redirects us from, you know what, Herod was doing all these things, Herod was wicked and evil, and he, uh, and he uh, took Peter and he threw him in prison, what, what we read in verse 5, but the people of God prayed fervently to God. Here we see again, Herod's end was this, what was Herod's end? Destruction, food for worms, death, but what is the end for the church? The word of God increased and multiplied. We see this great contrast between the world who is opposed to God and the rulers of this world filled with pride, opposing God, opposing God's people as Herod Agrippa did. We see the end of God's people. That it is thriving, that it is never ending, that it is increasing and multiplying. 
great hope that we see for the church. We also see a hope for salvation. I've always said that one of the main reasons that I'm a Christian is because I like to win. And it might sound crude to say, but when all is said and done and this life is over, there are winners and there are losers. There are no participation trophies given in life. No one is going to stand at the end of all these things and find some sort of middle place to be where you weren't that bad. I mean, you didn't like lose, but you're not a winner. There are winners and there are losers. But let me be clear. Where does our victory come from? How do we become a winner? Not by anything we do. Not in any way that we can boast. But as one of the songs that we sang last Friday night says, we have victory in Jesus. And it is not arrogant to say that in Christ, we win. In Christ Jesus, victory is ours. And it is also a needed warning to the world around us that apart from Christ, defeat is sure. Not just defeat, but utter destruction. This is why the Apostle Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. What option is there for believers who are in Christ Jesus? How can we lose? How can we lose? We can't. In Christ Jesus, the worst thing that the enemies in this world can do for us is to kill us and bring us face to face with our Savior. That's the worst thing they can do. That's why Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. As Christians, those who are united to Christ, ours is the victory in him. Because God is always just. He always sets the record right. His people will obtain the victory. There is no other option. And the wicked will face punishment if they do not repent. There is no other option. Psalm 83 that I read for us earlier. When we go back to it and we see the, the conclusion, we see that as we said, they, there's a fork in the road that we come to as believers. That the church was undoubtedly at. Where they could have easily headed down the road toward despair. But if they were reading their scriptures, if they were looking to the Lord, then even this psalm, Psalm 83, would have led them to hope. Because although Psalm 84 starts with a lamentation, with sorrow for the enemies that the people of God were facing, fearing their destruction, the conclusion goes like this. Oh God, in verse 13 through 18. Make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flames set the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Does this not sound like the end that Herod Agrippa faced? That he was put to shame? He perished in disgrace 
so that as he now knows, trust me of this, that the Lord is most high over all the earth. We see in our story today, the death of Herod, that God is faithful to his word and that this is the end of those who do not trust in him. This is the end of the enemies of God. The enemies of God will not stand forever. Though it seems like they gain, gain a victory here or a victory there, we know that they gain nothing apart from what the Lord has granted them and that in the end, theirs is destruction. The point of the message today is honestly a pretty simple one, yet one that Christians need to be reminded of. And that is that union with Christ means victory. It means hope. Victory over the world, victory over Satan, victory over sin. There is no greater hope to be found in this. Even as the author John writes the book of Revelation, this final book, this looking to the things to come and how the world will ultimately end. How does the world end? How does Revelation end? It ends with victory. It ends with at the feet of Satan. It ends with us entering into the rest of God. The story of Revelation, by the way, a book written to a church in suffering, is a story of victory. One that says hope in God and you will never be put to shame. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So these are the things that we need to remember here today. For some of you in here who know Christ, let this text, let this passage, and even the sort of disgusting and sad end of Sarah, let it, Herod, let it be for you hope. Hope that God does not forget his people, that he does not let them be defeated, but that victory always belongs to God. For some of you in here, that is what the message is that you need. That there is hope in Christ Jesus, victory in Christ Jesus. But for some of you, the message that you need to hear is the warning found here as well. Though many of us are not sitting on an actual throne the way Herod was, though many of us would never say that we speak as a God and not as a man, the reality of our hearts, the reality of all sinful human beings is that our inclination is that we want to be on the throne. We want to rule our life. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own God. And some of you in here today are still living in that way. Living as God of your own life, refusing to submit to the Lord, refusing to see God as who he is, and that is one who is just and will punish evil, and refusing to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. But I would implore you today, hear this warning. Look at the life of Herod and see where it ends up. And trust in Christ today. Even the psalmist says, fill their face with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. There is victory found in Christ Jesus and in his name, but it is found nowhere else and there is no middle ground. Church family, join in Christ and celebrate in his victory that he has won for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.